Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with Maureen Sherbandi, author of Lucky Brilliant, a poignant coming-of-age story shrouded in mystery and loss. When her father dies, Lucky begins receiving psychic visions of the future, visions that help her understand the dangerous secrets of her father's past. As she copes with the broken household her father left behind, Lucky must use these visions to prevent disaster. Lisa Williams Klein, author of One Week of You, called Lucky Brilliant an intriguing coming of age tale and an entrancing page turner. Maureen, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for, for being here. So I enjoyed your book. Uh, it's it was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of very interesting, and and it's it's real life. I mean, it's it's uh, you know teen angst, it's teen confusion, it's teen uh, alienation, it's a loss of a parent, it's having to deal with that. Uh, and I know that you teach writing. I know that uh, I hadn't really asked you much about your family, but uh, why this Why this genre, why this uh, age that you want to write about? Uh, because you do it well. Thank you. I appreciate your comments. Um, this actually started as an adult novel. And after years of uh, looking at it and editing it, I realized that the main voice of the book was in the voice of Lucky Brilliant, the 15-year-old protagonist. And it really is a book that I think can help 
teenagers. And the reason I'm interested in writing young adult books is because I think there is not enough realistic young adult fiction out there, characters that reflect what's going on in teenagers' own lives, because the world has some terrible things in it, (laughs) especially right now. And we don't always know individuals' uh, situations. We don't know what people are going through. So I think it's important for young readers to have books where there are characters that reflect their own lives. Um, Sometimes people are going through um, situations where they don't have enough food to eat. They're in abusive households. They're suffering from depression. They've lost somebody important to them. And it's not something that we always talk about at school or in society. Um, People want to hear about happy things. And what if you do not have happy things going on in your own life? So I think it's important to create these characters for teenagers to relate to. Yeah, and there are a lot of obstacles that are, that are thrown at Lucky. I love the name Lucky, by the way. That's a great, Lucky Brilliant. It's a great name. <laughs> I'll ask you about that in a second. But there are a lot of struggles that she has to uh, go through in this book. And I'm wondering, uh, it, it, you know, is there something from your past that makes you want to speak to these kinds of issues? Can you remember being that 15-year-old dealing with struggles and obstacles and how 15-year-old, I mean, maybe not something as severe as what she was going through, but do you have anything in your past that maybe spoke to you to write something like this? Yes. um, I remember when my own parents divorced when I was about 10. So this was in the 70s. And it was very unusual in our neighborhood to have uh, parents divorce. And suddenly, I heard whispers. um, Other kids didn't want to hang out with us. I think that other families were afraid that divorce was catching um, like a virus. (laughs) And so people started treating us a little bit differently. The teachers, when they found out, started teaching us, uh, treating us differently at school. Um, I even had one uh, teacher uh, drive me home to talk to me. This would never happen these days. Uh, would never be allowed. But this very caring teacher, um, I guess, saw that I had become quiet at school and was concerned about me. There was nothing nefarious about it. But he actually offered me a ride home that day, which, like I said, they would never do in these days. And he wanted to know if I was okay. He wanted to know what was going on in my life. He had heard that my parents divorced, and he was kind of doing a check-in with me which was actually very kind. Um, We have to be so careful these days, though. We can't do something like that. Um, But it's nice that there are people in the community, once they become aware of problems going on in someone's household, um, as is true in Lucky's household, um, um, people who are concerned and try to get help. Um, And the example in the book is someone calls a social worker because the main character, Lucky, Um, doesn't have enough to eat. Her mother's neglecting her. And the reason is her mother's neglecting her is because her husband died suddenly and tragically. And she is grieving and is not equipped to deal with taking care of her 15 year old daughter during this time. Yeah. But it starts out, it's got this, uh, you know, realistic teenage quality to it. Some couple of friends, you got lucky, and her friend Eva, and in sort of the opening scene, they're outside, it's, the moon's out, it's starting to snow, The her friend Eva says, let's make snow angels or whatever, and 
you know, Lucky tries to argue with you about more too old for that. But then there's this sort of back and forth where she asks her about her homework. She asks Lucky, you know, you miss gets everything done a month ahead of time. And, you know, she's talking about, well, yeah, I've only got a little bit left to go. Um, and then she asks, she says, but you miss calling sick on the due date of a project <laughs> and, and hand it in the next day. So they're kind of giving them this back and forth, this teenage kind of, you know, repertoire there. And, and, and I'm thinking, okay, you've set the stage here for, a normal teenager life and but also in the opening scenes you see um her ask the question at the end as she's looking up to the sky she has this feeling this intuition something in her voice is whispering this question where is dad Mm -hmm. of course dad doesn't come home that night because of this accident that may may or may not be an accident you know and 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 then she where did this idea come from to put into this young teenagers uh, had this thought that she could predict the future that to have these visions um part of it i think came from i've had some dreams that that um actually have have come true some weird dreams um i know it sounds odd and i don't share this with people because then they think i'm strange but um after my grandfather died who i was very close to I had three really vivid dreams where he came to me to find out if my mother was doing okay. And I was, I think, 15 years old when that happened and not really understanding the relationship they had. And looking back at it now, I realized that's exactly what he would have done. So in three different vivid uh, dreams, he came to me and all he wanted to know is if my mother was okay. And I said, Yes, she is, but I have questions for you. And then he would vanish. Um, so that happened. And then my grandmother supposedly had some psychic dreams. Um, so I think that was sort of there on a subconscious level. And I asked the question, if you could change something from happening, um, is there something bad that would come as a result of it? If we start monkeying with with fate and free will and all of those, those concepts. Um, could it have negative consequences? Sounds like a good Netflix series or something. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> well, there is this section in the book that I had tabbed here uh, where she's, you know, starting to think that maybe she does have this ability uh, to predict because she's predicting a robbery or, or dreaming about it and it comes true. But she, she has this thought, you know, uh, the question grew, you know, could she possibly change the future? and keep bad things from happening. And then it sort of occurred to her, could she have stopped her father from going out on that night on February 10th? So she's got this gift, uh, but it's also turning into a kind of a curse in her own head as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she has a lot of guilt related to his death because he had actually gone out on the day um, of his accident to purchase poster board for a school project for Lucky. And so she keeps feeling guilty because she thinks if he hadn't gone out to buy me poster board, he would still be alive. And and I I think a lot of teenagers feel all of these things. They feel guilt. They feel they're to blame for things, whether it be a parent's divorce or something else that happens. Um, If only I could have stopped this. If only I could have done something different. Um, she also feels very isolated. She doesn't feel like she can tell anyone that she's hungry. 
She can't even tell her best friend, Ava, that she doesn't have food. Um, luckily, Ava's big Italian family feeds her. <laughs> so that's a good, a good part of the book, having those wonderful neighbors who help. Hmm. Yeah. And you also, uh, amongst all the other things that are happening here, you, you drop a little mystery on us early in the, in the prologue with, uh, not only does, uh, the father die in an accident, but, uh, in one of the pockets, uh, he's got a velvet box with an engagement ring. Right. Now he's married. <laughs> he's married. And, 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 and that's right up there in the, I have a, a short prologue. I don't usually right. do prologues, right. right. Um, but in the prologue, you know, the police officer who goes to the scene, um, he thinks that's the strangest thing. He uh, has seen crashes before um, and he picks up this velvet box and that doesn't make sense to him because this man has a wedding ring on. Yeah. So I think we sort of set the stage a little bit for the relationship between um, Lucky and her father, which might be a good time to do a little reading. Perhaps you could ground us in terms of where we are in the story and um, maybe where we are in this particular scene. And then uh, you got a little short reading that uh, is kind of the relationship between the father and the daughter. Right. Um, because by the time the book is starting, the father um, is not present in the book. And I would like to share sort of his personality in some dialogue um, that includes both his daughter and himself. And um, Chase Brilliant is this charming real estate agent. He's a dreamer. He's involved in community theater. He thinks he's going to make it big in the movies one day, but he does not. <laughs> so, so um, he promises Lucky and her mother a lot of things, and he, he never follows through on it. Um, so he started building this great dollhouse for her when she was a little girl, and he didn't finish it. And after the death, she's angry, and she goes to see the unfinished dollhouse. So that's where this scene picks up. Looking at the unfinished dollhouse, I felt like I had been stung all over again. Dad had promised it would be finished years ago when I still played with dolls. Every time I asked him about the house, he shrugged, smiled, and said, Next year, Lucky. He would describe his elaborate plans, drawing sketches of the blue roof tiles and the molding he was going to order. The appliances would look like the fancy Thermidor ovens in kitchen and house magazines. A tray ceiling would adorn the living room. Dad had even found an artist who would make replica figurines of us all, even Monty. Monty's the dog. He was so wrapped up in his plans that I forgave him the endless days. When I'm a famous actor and we live in Beverly Hills, our house will be like this, only a little bigger, of course, he said. Then he would talk about the time he was in a real movie. He had read about a casting call for extras in a movie about the mafia that was shooting in Atlantic City. It was R-rated, but he and mom took me anyway on the night that it opened at the Brickville Theater. I remember the movie was full of Italian actors who reminded me of Ava's family with dark hair and brown eyes. During one scene on the crowded boardwalk, dad pointed to the screen and whispered, look close, that's me in the white shirt. When the movie ended, he asked, so what did you think of your old man? 
Well, it was kind of hard to see you, I said. I recognized your hair and your walk, but I couldn't see your face. I thought you had a speaking part. I did, he said. They must have cut it. They do that in the editing room. Even the stars have their dialogue cut. He seemed quiet and a little sad. You're famous, I said, guilty that I had taken away his smile. Yeah, at least I can add it to my resume. It's a real film credit. The phone should start ringing off the hook any day now. I'm sure the agents in Hollywood will be contacting me. It was difficult to tell if he was being serious. We were walking away from the theater. Mom put her arm around him and said, You did stand out from the other extras. The camera loved you. Really? Dad smiled at her as if starving for a compliment. He was acting like Mom did when she was unsure if an outfit looked good before a big night out. Of course, she said. Dad leaned in and kissed her. But the phone calls never came. At night, Dad paced the living room, stopping in front of the phone, picking it up to make sure it worked. Then he would bang down the receiver. After a month, he continued acting in the community theater, but he told the story of his film debut to anyone who would listen. The story changed, growing larger and longer with time. I had lunch with Pacino. He gave me his personal number. He might hook me up with his agent. People seemed captivated when Dad gave these accounts. He could deliver an entire story with hand gestures, his fingers and palms loosing the air. Those hands made him unbeatable at charades. He had long fingers, long but not too lean, with neatly trimmed nails. His hands were clean and smooth. They weren't like the gnarled, calloused hands of construction workers or carpenters, people who didn't have office jobs. In the small town of Brickville, Dad had become a star. No one else we knew had appeared as an extra in a big movie before. At parties, men and women gathered around to hear him recount his experience. So this is a scene where we learn uh, about one side of her father. But as the story progresses, Lucky learns um, other things about her dad, partly through the actions of her mother, partly through actions of people who visit. But um, she's trying to cope with the financial situation, their house is going to be foreclosed. Uh, there are all kinds of things that are swirling around. And then at some point she finds out some more things about her father. I won't give away because it's part of the plot in the book. I will note that Monty, you mentioned is the dog. Uh, I, I did laugh at this one chapter. Dad, I wanted to call the dog, sir barks a lot <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because he didn't bark at all. And then uh, they just, they settled on Monty as in Monty Python's <laughs> Circus, dad's favorite show. Uh, because he was talking to her about uh, humor and the need to be funny. And, uh, you know, he said he had gotten in a lot of sticky situations and she asked about it and he said, but humor had always helped him. And so that was, I suppose, one redeeming factor about the father, even though there were other aspects of, you know, his life that uh, gave them a lot of problems. Hey, Lucky Brilliant, where'd the name come from? So um, I was thinking of the concept of luck. And um, I, I wanted her to be called Lucky, so I decided her name was Lucy. And then I came up with a story about why they started calling her Lucky. And it has to do, and this is in the book too, has to do with um, her father takes her to Atlantic City one day. And they go to see a fortune teller. 
And so the fortune teller gives a free fortune to Lucky and she tells her she's a very lucky girl. And she ends up um, helping pick winning Kino numbers for her dad that day. And she finds um, something in the sand that's worth money. But then her father goes in. This is foreshadowing of the book. Father goes in and you don't know what the fortune teller sends him, but he looks quite upset after um, he meets with the fortune teller. So that's kind of an early hint that life is not going to turn out well for him. <laughs> um, so I like, I like the concept of luck, fortune, bad fortune, um, this idea that, you know, if you use up all your luck early in life, do you have no luck later? Do you have a finite amount of luck? So I think about those things a lot. I write poetry also. So um, that comes up in my poetry as well. Yeah, there's a saying in, in the book, um, it's it's after the father doesn't come home, and, and it kind of sums up sort of where Lucky stands, uh, you know, in the world at the moment, uh, as if she's all alone. And it says, the visitors stopped coming, the phone stopped ringing, the mailbox stopped filling with sympathy cards, mom stared at her list, neat little check marks beside each to-do item. She crumpled the paper, opened a bottle of wine, finished it, and fell asleep, and for days she slept, vaguely aware of my presence before or after school. I'd bring her soup and tea, but every time she looked at me, she acted as if she were seeing a ghost. So I know that in the teenage years, you know, depression and loneliness is something um, that is is really invading the lives of, of young people these days. And this one is sort of piling on in, in lucky situation. Did, did you feel like that was an important thing to try to address in this book as one of the themes? Yes, um, because that's what happens in life sometimes. Things pile on. The foreclosure notice is on the door. Um, the, the mother can't pay the heating bill, so Lucky's freezing. There's no food. Um, depression happens. And then how do you deal with feeling depressed when more negative things are happening? So I think it's really important. The mother is obviously depressed, and I think that it's important that to know that adults also suffer from these things, um, you know, not just teenagers, and to have some empathy for anyone who suffers from um, depression. And add to that the fact that uh, the mother seems to be bouncing back quicker than the daughter in terms of uh, whether or not there should be another man in the house. And there's a little scene where she's like, uh, are you going out on a date? And- <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and she says, "Lucky, it's it's no big deal." Well, Dad just died, you know. Lucky, I'm tired of mourning. Perhaps it's time to move on. And so, you know, she's got a different vision of her father than her mother does. Right, and um, I know you don't want to give secrets away, but the mother has good reason to move mm-hmm. on. Um, she, right. she finds out. So, Lucky is finding out things about her father, but so is her mother. And Lucky hears bits and pieces of conversation and can figure a couple things out. Um, But the mother is going through some awful things herself, not only being responsible for her daughter and this household she can't afford, but she's finding out that the man she married um, was not the man she thought he was. Yeah, which leads to a scene in the book that I wanted to ask you about. It uh, it's not something necessarily that someone as young as fifteen might tackle, but maybe possibly. And in this case they did because of everything that was happening in her life. 
but sometimes it happens to kids when we get to college, maybe it's uh, midlife, whatever, but uh, she's having uh, questions about her faith and uh, she's talking to an adult, telling him that she doesn't think she believes in God anymore. And what she says is no God would take away a father like mine or would hurt my best friend. Uh, no God would take away those two innocent teenagers that she, you know, had an accident. So, um, talk to us about that for a minute, because, uh, you know, that's an important part of the book too. Um, so this, this is a, a scene between Lucky and, um, a really caring older neighbor, um, Mr. Keene. And I think it's important to have these caring people in community, whether it be a neighbor or somebody else. And the conversation, um, just like you said, is Lucky questioning um, the existence of God because she does say, no God would take away a father like mine. No God would hurt my best friend and destroy her future as a dancer. And she's angry. I think it shows that it's okay to be angry and it's really healthy to have somebody to talk to about that anger. She's angry at God. She's angry at the world in this scene. And it's really nice. She has a safe place to go. She can talk to Mr. Keene about this, who's this wise old retired professor. And um, I'll read just a little bit of what he says. Um, he, he indicates that he was once angry and he has more life experience so he can teach her something. Imagine a world where no one believes in anything. Whatever you want to call it, a higher source, a spirit in the sky, hope. Imagine a world without a deity to pray to, a world where no one is listening to all those thoughts. And then she comes back and says, there's no sense to anything, I said. No point. We talk to an empty room, an empty church or temple. No one is listening but our own selves. We make stuff up to believe in so we can make it through the day. Maybe there's only air and space and death. And then he calls her a fatalist and says he's going to stop giving her those existential uh, philosophy books to read. That he, yeah. uh, so I, I think it's okay. It shows that you can have these conversations and you can express your anger and it's healthy to do so. Um, but you do have to have people that can talk to you about these things. Yeah, and I'm glad you read that because I was actually going to head right to that section next uh, and and to tell us that because imagine a world where no one believes in anything. I wrote a, a, a trilogy of Christmas books where Christmas is on t trial and time is running out. It's kind of a cross between my cousin Vinnie Miracle on 34th Street. But one of the themes that I develop in there is belief. And there was this thing called a true believer, and that's an adult who believes in Santa Claus. And I have a scene in there where it talks about you know, how belief is free, you know, it's not going to cost you anything. And this idea of believing in something, and you mentioned, you know, a spirit in the sky, a higher source, hope even, just believing in hope would be something, you know, for her to think about. So it's, it's nice to see some counseling here, but it's also nice to see the honesty that's being reflected uh, in this voice, this young voice who's seeing the real world, you know, around her too. Um Let's do this. Let's talk writing life for just a second, uh, because you do have a writing life. You're, as you said, you've had works of poetry, short stories, you know, chat books. You've received awards for your writing, and you're a teacher. You teach creative writing, and so I'm curious because earlier in the show today you said, "Well, this is going to be an adult novel," and then I switched it to a, <laughs> a teenage voice. How do you go from an adult voice to a teenage voice, or did it just happen? Well, what happened really is this this book was written in four different points of view. 
Um, and I realized that it was really Lucky's story. I still think it is a crossover novel. I'm hoping it is. I, it has adult um, topics in here, and I think adults would also enjoy it. I, I was surprised to find out that a large percentage of people who read young adult novels are adults. Um, and that makes sense to me. I think also if you have teenagers and you're a parent, you might want to read the book first to see if it has stuff in there that you would approve of and so on. Um, but I think the voice that comes came out strongly in the book was, was Lucky's, and it really was her story, and I wanted it to show her world and her feelings and so on. Yeah, and so – it's interesting to me that you say you had uh, four different points of view because this is this book, uh, you know, is, is told in the uh, first person head of of Lucky. Um, I think it is, or at least it's told in her head anyway, from that perspective throughout. And so you see her, you get close to her, you, you know how she's thinking and what she's thinking, um, and you, so you sort of had to put yourself back in that uh, mindset. Now, mm-hmm. I can see you here on Squadcast. I'm not being accused story, but you don't look 15 anymore, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you know, and either do I, of course, you know, do that too. But uh, how do you get your mindset back into, to get the voice right when you're putting yourself in, in there? Well, I think like a child I do. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I have a really active imagination yeah. and um, I always kept diaries. I kept diaries from the time I was eight years old. I've always liked to write things down and I remember some of the things that I wrote down. I've reread them. And some of my students are as young as 15 years old, so I'm around them. It's, it's easy for me to go into the, the mindset of a teenager because I have a really active imagination. Um, I do that when I write flash fiction, when I write poetry. Um, I spend a lot of time, probably too much time in my head. <laughs> so it's not hard for me to do it. I think creative people can do that. When do you carve out your writing time? Yeah, I'll tell you, during this pandemic, it's been really challenging. Um, like I told you before the show, I am teaching seven online classes at uh, Alamance Community College. And it's actually more time consuming than when I was teaching in person, even though I had a long drive. So I'm really struggling with it for the first time, but um, on weekends I've been writing. Uh, I was writing another young adult novel. I had to stop because I was getting frustrated because I just didn't have enough time. Um, On long breaks, I get three months off in the summer. So I do a lot of writing in the summer and I'm a really fast writer too. Um, So I I can do a lot of projects. Last summer, the summer before last, I put together a short story collection. Last summer, I wrote an entire uh, women's fiction novel that I've been trying to get an agent for. Um, I carve out time whenever I have it, um, turning off the TV at the end of the day when I'm done teaching, um, which doesn't seem ever done because I'm always checking the email now and doing stuff. Do you, do you use different disciplines for uh, when you write uh, the shorter works uh, than when you tackle uh, a novel like this? Different disciplines in, w- in which way? In the sense that do you come at it uh, in a different way in terms of how you approach uh, the, the work? Um, sort of, 
just in terms of your process, in terms of how yeah. you get ready, ready to do it? Uh, yes. Yes. So for novel writing, I spent a lot of time doing sort of pre-work, which is thinking about a situation that I want to examine, thinking about the characters that are going to inhabit the novel. Um, I need to know them inside and out before I even start writing. Um, so that involves a lot of thinking time and writing notes. When I write flash fiction, I, I just sit around. I might read something else which might trigger an idea, and then I start writing. Um, when I write a poem, it's similar. I'll read like John Ashbery or you know one of the other writers that I enjoy reading and uh, usually trigger something, and I just see where it goes. And with poetry, I try to write three poems in a row, and usually the first two are terrible and the third one's a little better. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I sometimes ask teachers this, uh, you know, other than the syllabus, what do you tell your creative writing students on the first day of class? Have fun writing. Writing should be fun, and you have to find a way to make it enjoyable or you're not going to do it. You have to read a lot. And you have to write every day. That's good. What would you tell your younger writing self, Maureen? Um, something valuable that had she known it, she might have used that uh, to her advantage coming along in the writing world. Well, I didn't actually study writing when I was at Rutgers. At Rutgers, I didn't believe in myself. I didn't believe I could ever be a real writer, you know, with a book and real publications. So I did not... Um, major in writing. And I would go back and hit myself on the head and say, what are you thinking? Study creative writing, just do it, follow what you want to do, because you end up doing it anyway, one way or another. I ended up selling workers' comp insurance. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit different. We, we don't have time to talk about how you get from there to here. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, listeners, this has been uh, an episode with Maureen uh, Shabandi and her book is Lucky Brilliant. Uh, it's it's a great uh, coming of age story with a young uh, adult who is really struggling with lots of uh, issues in her life. And uh, the, the fun thing now is that we're going to jump over to our Patreon page and uh, Maureen and I are going to dive deeper. We're going to talk about uh, this topic, the importance of realistic fiction for young adults. Uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more about our writing as well. So you can check us out there uh, at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. Or you can check out our Patreon page on the podcast website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. So jump over there, check it out. It's, it's a nominal monthly fee. You get access to this and all the other content as well. And so uh, Maureen, I uh, just want to thank you for uh, being on Charlotte's podcast and for this uh, wonderful work you've put into the world. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, 
please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.